We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. From the files of Schlock and Awe, welcome to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. Here are your hosts, Matty Budrevich and Dave Wayne. Don't you dare touch me! Stand back! No! No! Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Natural Selection, the Creature Feature Podcast. Um, once again, thanks for listening to last month's episode, and a big congratulations to Adrian Rowe, who won our lovely Anaconda box set, shrink-wrapped and deluxe. And that should be with you now, Adrian, so I hope you really do enjoy it. Um, my name is Dave Wayne, on my right is the amazing Matty Budrevich, and today we're, we're going to talk about something personal. This is where all notions of objective, professional sort of film criticism, I guess, uh, goes out the window. And we just, we're going to be speaking from the heart. The heart and also the penis, because we've had to, (laughs) (laughs) we've had to really, uh, you know, uh, damp proof this this room, uh, you know, put plastic on the floor, uh, hazmat suits on, because we care a great deal about these films, maybe perhaps more than anything we've spoken about so far. Um, And those three films that we're talking about, Begin with Venomous, continue with Leeches, and finish off with Deadly Stingers, and, and regard three of our, well, three filmmakers who we really, really do have a lot of time for, and that's Fred Olin Ray, David Okoto, and J.R. Buckwalter. But why is it that, that these three guys mean so much to us? These guys, we are one Jim Wynorski away from, <laughs> you know, the, the holy sort of quartet mm. of B-movie auteurs. Mm. Um, we've talked so far about a lot of excellent directors and a lot of auteur directors mm. like Toby Hooper, um, Gary Jones, John Ayres, Brian Usner. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about the companies that they were working for at the time, like New Image, uh, Fantastic Factory, Trimark, Cinetel, And... We've linked them all with the supply and demand yeah. concept mm-hmm. that these guys were making these movies to fill a gap in the market. This episode is probably the most, I guess, most, what's the word I'm looking for here? This is the most pinpointed in terms of how we're going to look at the marriage between great directors mm. and companies making movies that tick the artistic needs of the people making them because we, we are very much auteur-driven uh, critics. Yeah. We, we do believe that the director is the unifying voice mm-hmm. of uh, the film. So it's how their vision reconciles with the demands of the market. And I find it utterly fascinating that even though you know Fred Olin Ray, David Dakota, they, they bat out movies left, right and centre, mm. it's a production line for them. Yeah. But at the same time, they there's such a uniquely personal vision to what they do, and it fascinates me how they manage to reconcile their own artistic impulses 
with the creature feature trend of the early noughties. What is really, really cool is that the creature features they made of that period, Venomous, Leeches, Deadly Stingers, all three of them yielded really, really varied results. Mm -hmm. None of them, I would say, are excellent movies, but artistically, they are fascinating, Mm. and there is a lot, a lot to love about them. Uh, Rays, for instance, Venomous, which is this weird cross between a creature feature and the military hardware uh, thrillers of the nineties, mm. uh, late nineties, early nineties that he was making at the time. It's a fusion yeah. of the two genres. Dakotos is this wonderfully weird, almost erotic art horror <laughs> masquerading as a as a daft creature feature B movie. And Book Walters, it, it fascinates me in the sense that it sadly led to a career burnout mm. that he's never recovered from. You're listening to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV creature feature. Ow! You gonna make it, Doc? I don't know. An infected person is contagious within minutes. An outbreak no one understands. What is happening? Becomes a catastrophe everyone fears. They think this virus is spread by snake bite. Oh, man. That means we'll have to burn this town to the ground. Treat Williams. trailer there for Venomous, the 2001 creature feature from Fred Olin Ray and you can listen to an interview, a great interview with Fred um, at the end of this episode it's, it's well worth hanging around for um, so let's speak about Mr. Olin Ray and our love for him but mainly your love for him and you know, what what is an 18 year old Matty Podravich doing watching Fred Olin Ray films? <laughs> um, I guess like any uh, 18 year old it was basically I have no shame saying this it was to see uh, Michelle Bauer and Linnea Quigley's breasts in Filth. Hollywood Chainsaw Filth. Hookers I'm afraid it, my it uh, while now I certainly appreciate the art and the sort of <laughs> themes of Ray's movies back then it was purely because I had a bit of a thing for uh, <laughs> Bauer and Quigley <laughs> um, but yeah I think Fred Olin Ray is remarkable he is a one-man movie-making machine, mm. and what I really, really love about him is that you can pretty much track the history of contemporary American yeah. B-movies through his work. Mm-hmm. He has worked in every single genre, um, ev- any time it is popular. Mm-hmm. He is just a workhorse. You know, he, he began in the early 80s with um, a little regional horror movie called The Alien Dead. Yeah. Uh, and then he went on or after he moved from Florida to Los Angeles he made this great great slasher movie called Scalps which mm-hmm. I absolutely love um, and it's got that great sort of open air claustrophobia you know the same feeling mm. that The Hills of Eyes gives yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah. you know where it's really creepy arid desert landscapes with all kinds of weirdness going on and so after that he ended up he's got a couple more horror movies of course but this was sort of in the days between the driving becoming home video and so he transitioned from making these sort of schlocky horror movies into action films and then you have the likes of Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and these great Scream Queen movies in the late 80s that eventually gave way to the erotic thrillers of the early to mid-90s. Uh, Ray would then go on to make 
kids movies and then finally would finish up the 90s by making these military hardware thrillers mm. um, again he works in whatever genre is popular at the time he's, a, he's such a wonderfully commercial filmmaker that just grinds out these movies to the whole supply and demand ethos yeah. and so that's where we find Venomous which is as we've said this strange cross between military hardware thrillers mm-hmm. and creature feature yeah and it is a strange blend, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it's. I mean, it's one of the. It's one of the only films we're talking about today that I haven't seen before. So I mm. watched it for the first time. It's on Amazon Prime. It's a, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous looking, 1080p, uh, presentation. That's that's amazing to look at. It's a unique film. It wasn't what I was expecting. No. Because no. Um, it's very tame. It's very PG thirteen. Mm. It's 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 almost like a TV movie in some respects. Yeah. Uh, and that surprised me because I thought, you know, catering for that kind of German market, you may be looking for a bit more gore or splatter mm. or, or. It's action. not the, a creature feature in the sense of the sort of loud CGI ones that Ray would do later for sci fi. Mm. You know, stuff like uh, Megaconda, um, Silent Venom, his other snake movie. Yeah. This is. I mean, the whole genesis of Venomous, it came about because they wanted to make Outbreak with snakes mm, mm. so that links in with the sort of military thing um, the film's producer Andrew Stevens was a, a long time collaborator of Ray's um, they'd worked together on uh, a bunch of pictures for Stevens's Royal Oaks which yeah. he set up after he'd pretty much shut up shop as an actor you know, Stevens of course um, he, he began the other side of the camera and he'd pop up in things like 10 to Midnight mm. um, that what what the David Schmoller film with Morgan Fairchild The Seduction mm, mm. and you know he'd be popping up in things like that before trading it in to become a producer yeah. and so he's making all these movies for the director video market and eventually Royal Oaks becomes franchise pictures mm-hmm. uh, which Stevens forms with a guy called Eli Samaha uh, Samaha he was a, of all things, a dry cleaning mogul <laughs> who uh, probably most famously uh, owned the Roxbury nightclub. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, he set up with Stevens and Franchise was born and Franchise's whole ethos was to pick up scripts in turnaround from mm. other studios and make them for a fraction of the cost. Yeah. Most of these scripts were uh, vanity vehicles. Mm. You know, there were these passion projects by the likes of Sylvester Stallone, uh, Sean Penn, Jack Nicholson. So you ended up with these movies like Driven, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know the Rennie Harlan driving yeah, yeah, film, yeah. which mm-hmm. is uh, really quite the train wreck. <laughs> um, the Pledge, the Sean yeah. Penn film with Nicholson, uh, which is a very good sort of noirish mm. uh, mm. detective film. Absolutely. And then Bruce Willis's The Whole Nine Yards, and probably most famously uh, Battlefield Earth, mm. which uh, they made with John Travolta. Of course, the whole other side of that is Battlefield Earth is the film that got franchise. Uh, into a lot of trouble with the FBI, mm. owing to them uh, massaging the figures of the budget. <laughs> so, you know, just a, a, in a nutshell, they were telling the German investors, who were entertainment, uh, spelt with an I, mm. they were telling them that it was made for X amount of money when really it was a lot cheaper. Yeah. So instead of financing like 40% of the budget, they were pretty much poning up the cash for the whole thing. Now, we need to know all this because entertainment were the ones who were bankrolling franchises' uh, direct-to-video subdivision. 
which was Phoenician. Mm -hmm. Phoenician were the ones who were making the military hardware thrillers of which Venomous, as well as a lot of other Ray movies, and a lot of movies made by Ray's closest contemporary, Jim Wynorski, were part of. So that's where we are with Venomous in terms of a direct-to-video history. German money, German demand, because these films were making a lot of cash on the uh, German market. Yeah, what other films did Phoenician make? Uh, well, God, so many, so many. Um, of Ray, they had uh, Countermeasures. Mm. Um, or actually, Tell a Lie, that was Royal Oaks, just as it was turning into Phoenician. Right. But we had uh, the likes of Active Stealth, um, Air Rage, uh, Critical Mass. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, for Jim Wynorski, um, they were belting out things like Ablaze and Rangers. Yeah. And... These movies were bankrolled for about $1.2, $1.3 million a piece, mm-hmm. and with the rest of their production value coming from the use of stock footage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about the specifics of Venomous. Mm-hmm. We've got Dr. David Henning, played by Treat Williams, who's kind of got a thing going on with his ex-wife. You know, he, yeah, you can tell yeah. he really still likes her, but she's away. She's what, very strange, yeah, aren't Yeah, she works for the government, doesn't she? Yes. She's um, Mary Page Keller plays his wife, uh, Dr. Christine Edmonton Henning. I think she was quick to uh, remove the Henning from her Edmontons. Yes, in one in one of the films, uh, good sort of running jokes, I yeah. think. It's yeah, mentioned yeah, a couple yeah. of times that she's dropped the last name. Um, but it's a great small town, isn't mm-hmm. it? You know, typical middle America, snakes everywhere which have resurfaced following some kind of seismic activity mm-hmm. and good old... Dr. Henning is pretty much at the at the at the battlefront, uh, trying to stave off the impending army as well, who are trying to um, keep it all uh, hush hush, because um, it's a military experiment that had to be covered up. Mm-hmm. Classic like government conspiracy. Classic government so, conspiracy. There's a, there's a lot going on from the outset, yeah. Venomous, which uh, is a is is a really nice. Almost typical Ray trope, mm. but there's a uh, there's a, a lot of uh, I don't want to say mythology um, because it's not really a sort of mythic film, but there's a lot of backstory yeah. going on that you can piece together through dialogue or um, through the actions of the characters. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing with Venomous is that you know in the early nineties, like ten years before one of the films set or whatever. Uh, this government building had yeah. been attacked by eco-terrorists and these experimental snakes had disappeared mm-hmm. only to resurface 10 years later yeah. due to these weird little earthquakes mm-hmm. that are happening in this little backwater town. Treat Williams has done a few films with, with Fred, hasn't he? I think he was in a couple um, around that era. He had a lot of uh, direct-to-video <laughs> cr- uh, cashier, I guess, at the time. You know, he was... Uh, he popped up in the likes of Gale Force mm. uh, for Jim Wynorski, uh, which was another Phoenician movie. Same yeah. with uh, Crash Point Zero, aka yeah. uh, Extreme Limits, I believe is its alternative title. So he had quite a bit of stock within the director video industry. Movies that he was appearing in were, were making good money as rentals. I think a large part of that probably rests on his involvement in the, uh, the Substitute sequels. Yeah, but it, it's like such a a really weird career because like Treat mm-hmm. Williams back in the early 80s was going to be like the next big thing mm-hmm. you know he was he was front and centre in Prince of the City the Sidney Lumet film uh, which I think was originally slated for Robert De Niro I think he was going to star mm-hmm. in that originally um, or, or just because he was going to direct it either way you know that film was going to be huge and it just didn't redo the business then Spielberg's 1941 mm-hmm. kind of flopped at the box office as well 
And so this guy who who was like a good actor, obviously like screen icon looks, he just didn't really do it. But then he had this sort of career renaissance, you know, mid nineties mm. when you had stuff like um, you know things to do in Denver when you're dead, which although we look back on it now as some kind of great movie, it, it did pretty much flop at the box office. Mulholland Falls front and center flopped at the box office. Phantom flopped at the box office. Devil's Own, flopped to the box office. Deep Rising, great film, flopped to the box, box office. So five box office bombs in succession mm. kind of sort of relegated him forever mm. into B-movies. And as you say, Substitute 2 followed in 96, mm-hmm. 3, 4, went beyond that. And um, he did sort of then uh, fall into that kind of... Um, bottom shelf territory, but we're 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 quite happy about that. I, I mean, I I think one of the greatest strengths of Venomous mm. is that as an actor, Treat Williams is just charisma personified. Oh, he's brilliant. I mean, Coats, I, plaid shirt. I mm, I, I just love seeing him. I like seeing brilliant. Treat Williams oh. being Treat Williams. Yeah, I could yeah. happily watch you know two hours of him reading the phone book out loud, <laughs> and he he is in nearly every single scene yeah, in Venice. Yeah. He carries this film and yeah. he's such a, again, such a wonderfully charismatic guy. The character he plays is really affable and mm. warm. You can tell that he's a pillar of the community. Plus he carries it through those implausible moments. I mean, mm. that's the great thing about any creature feature. It's packed full of implausible moments. But here, you know, he's got that sequence where he has to extract the... Um, Extracting the, the anti-venom. The anti-venom from the snake. So off he gets his jacket on, go mm. heads, heads into some, you know, awful territory, then, you know, brilliant. That, I mean, that whole... That's the, the, the money shot mm. of Venomous. There's two... In terms of creature carnage, there's two great mm. creature-based bits with the snakes. The first one is... Treat Williams' character, you know, do, go, doing his little snake wrangler thing, trying to get a snake to use the anti-venom. He goes down into this, um, I guess it's sort of like a a, a mine shaft or yeah, something like yeah. that, and he's going around trying to scoop these snakes up into a bag and treat Williams. It's like he's just, like collecting litter from a park. It's it really marvellous. It's mm. utterly marvellous. Especially, you know, he's got these little witticisms that he's saying, mm. uh, you know, you'd make a great belt as he's putting this snake into a, 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 a little sack. Uh, and then the other one is um, a character a little bit later on who gets attacked while she's having a shower. Oh, yeah. And yeah. again, as with Williams' uh, performance, a great strength of Venomous is just how well Ray utilises the snakes. Mm-hmm. I, I think that as a technical exercise, Venomous is certainly at the top end of Ray's filmography. Yeah. It's just a wonderfully technically well-done movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. I mean, in the film itself, you've got a cameo from Andrew Stevens. But one thing I really like about Fred's films, and, and Dave Dakota mentioned this on his commentary for Leeches, is the fact that he has this love of old movies. Mm. He grew up on old movies, and every one of his films, you'll see, if you scroll down the cast, you'll see peppered mm. classic stars from the 60s and 70s that just haven't really got a break since, and it's great to see him giving them work, you know, you've got people like um, Larry Carroll, who's, who's in the film as the news reporter, who plays a news reporter in every film he's in. Um, he actually, actually is a real oh, news reporter really? as well, yeah. <laughs> so I think the, the joke is that he's cast to give that sense of believability. Right, okay. Yeah. And then you've got Roy, uh, Ron Harper, who plays Larry, you've got Rick Hurst, who plays Edgar, 
And there are these kind of character actors who have been going, you know, since the mid 60s, early 70s, and never really caught a big break. But you can tell that Ray kind of mm. recognized them either on TV or growing up as a kid and, and has thought, right, I want to I wanna give them a part in my Yeah, film. get them back in. You know, and it, it's, it's, and like a, it's, it's a methodology that, you know, he carried over to the likes of uh, Ross Hagen. Right. And stuff who were used mm-hmm. a lot in, uh, you know, throughout his career. Mm. Um, of course, Hagen isn't in Venomous. It'd have been, I mm. mean, I'd love to have seen that after. Mm-hmm. Anytime Ross Hagen pops up in anything, I think it's marvellous. But with Venomous, it occupies Ray's, Ray's very, very good at ensemble casting. Yeah. You know, there's, mm. he, his movies don't get enough credit for being really good ensemble pieces. And as good as Williams is in Venomous, he is backed up by. Some one mm. this wonderful supporting cast, mm. and all of them, the people who play the townsfolk, even the, they might only be on screen what maybe two or three minutes at a time, but you get a real sense of place with Venomous. You actually really believe this is a little California backwater town that everyone does know everyone, that people do get along, that people do have a little bit of friction with their neighbours and things like that. Yeah, Ray's very very good at juggling that part of Venomous's uh, script. Mm-hmm. So what happened to Venomous when it got finished? Uh, who released it? Did it did it come out? It didn't come out on here, uh, UK and DVD, did it? No, no, no it, um, it's never been released in the UK. Hasn't I think uh, the first, I, I'm not entirely sure if it's played on uh, sci-fi or movies mm. for men, anything like that. Um, but the first time I was aware of it over here in the UK was when it popped up on Amazon Prime. Right, okay. Before that, it was released in America uh, via 20th Century Fox, who mm-hmm. had a, an output deal with Phoenician. Yeah. I don't think Venomous did as well as the sort of Fox movies that it was trying to be pegged at, like Python. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it came on the bounce between Python and Python 2, right. and they were trying to, uh, you know, play up the creature feature side of it, mm. which really, as a creature feature, that's probably the film's flaw is that if you go in expecting giant snakes and stuff, you're not, you're going to get this compact um, ensemble viral thriller. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be surprised by how much emphasis there is on the behind the, be, behind the scenes of the military machinations and mm-hmm. stuff like mm-hmm. that. You know, all this talk of that they're going to nuke the town, yeah, yeah, that yeah. they're going to bomb all the residents and things mm. like that. It does work, though. The yeah. virus side of it is... Ex- I actually... I, and I say this completely free of irony. I would choose to watch this over Outbreak any day. It's much, yeah. it's much better paced. It's far mm. less. It's a serious film, but it's not poor faced no, or no, anything no. like that. And um, you know, it's free of the sort of uncomfortable uh, AIDS panic that sort of simmered beneath <laughs> Outbreak. Something that I always right. find a bit. Uh, Fist in mouth levels of uncomfortable. Yeah, um, as you say though, you know, it rattles along at a, no pun intended. Rattles along at a fair old pace. The, the blend between the two genres really, really fits it. Mm. Um, you know, really, really well. Uh, and I liked that about it. And I must admit, the first time I saw it when we when I put it on for research for this, and I do like it indeed. I would certainly recommend it to to anyone who's uh, who's not familiar with mm. with Fred, but. If you weren't familiar with Fred, where would you begin? You know, if, 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 if you know, our listenership here, some of them probably are, some of them are probably well-versed in the films of Fred Olin Ray. Mm-hmm. But if you weren't, where would you begin? What would be the five films that you would recommend in order to really get into appreciating the work of Fred Olin Ray? Oh, man, that is so tough because 
I do think Venomous skirts very much around mm. his best work. Mm-hmm. As I said, technically, I mean the film it it, it looks incredible. Yeah, for one, um, it's just it's beautifully composed, especially the snake stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Ray really knows how to ramp up the sort of creepiness of the snakes. Yeah, um, and you know it, it it feels like Ray doing big budget mm-hmm. because the whole thing with his Phoenician output is that. They are healthily budgeted movies compared to, you know, when he, I don't know, make Bad Girls from Mars for like $20,000 yeah. <laughs> or whatever. But in terms of actual top five, Venomous is very, very close to being in okay, there. But okay. I think my five, I would probably pick Scalps, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, uh, Critical Mass, mm-hmm. Inner Sanctum 2 would be my wild card. Okay. And then number five, ugh, I could happily just drop anything from spirits to possessed by the night mm-hmm. um, active stealth uh, one of them I'd put that in there but Venomous is a very if you are new to Ray's stuff and you want to get a taste of how well he can utilise limited resources to make a, an extremely entertaining compact movie Venomous would be a good place to start you're listening to Natural Selection the home of the DTV Creature Feature. Come on, you guys. My mama can swim faster than that. She's 65. Meet us in the locker room later. Share the secret of my success. Steroids? It works for me. Trust you. Okay. I actually think it's helping. Might make team captain yet. Any chance you can share your secret with me? I'd probably do this team a lot better if you just drop out. You got like leeches on you. What? Ew. <laughs> that was on me? After the meet tomorrow. I don't need any more pills. Your father was a medalist. You don't even want to be a part of, of what they are. Of course I do. You're letting him screw up your life. They're going to make you feel like a champion, and you're going to feel like even more of one. That's where we win them all. And there's leeches in the water. Ew. Really? Yeah, you can't feel them, but they latch on and suck out your blood. I've already been in the water, okay? No leeches on me. Tony Lamarco drowned out of the lake. How could he have drowned like that? I think some of the other guys might have given him something. I mean, I know some of them are on steroids. In case they decide to search our rooms, those of us who have them need to go and get rid of them. Make me feel strange. I don't know, like, like I'm not myself. You're not yourself, right? You're better. There wasn't much blood left in the body, but I was able to draw enough to run a couple tests. He tested positive for steroids. Anyway, I know some of you guys are talking about drug tests, and I'm concerned too, but I'm going to do my best to make sure that that does not happen. What's that? I don't know. It was all over Angela's aquarium. Something's been feeding on you guys for who knows how long. It's, it's all a mistake. We can't let anyone know about this. Because you killed her. Why? It's my educated guess that they're the result of your little steroid program. No. I believe you, man. I don't see how it's possible that something like that can just grow that big. Who cares how this happens? Okay, I don't want to be next. So come on, Steroid monster, huh? You've been listening to the speedo-laced delights of leeches there, the David Okoto creature feature from 2003. Are, are our names synonymous with... David Dakota appreciation these days? Well, more so you, but I hope so. I think that, you know, we do pump out a lot of Dakota love on our social media feeds. And I know your interview from a couple of years back was... Uh, the, the drum I continue to bang. You are banging, ba- banging a very large pink drum. So where do we start with, with Dakota? I mean, you know, where, where can you possibly begin? I think David Dakota is a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's the closest 
we will ever come to a modern day Jess Franco mm-hmm. in terms of style, tone, and content. Albeit, instead of you know lesbian vampires, mm. you've got beautiful young guys in white or black underwear frolicking around his movies. But why is Matthew Bodrevich a heterosexual male liking David Dakota films? Because that's what that's what people think, isn't it? People think, mm. well, if you like David Dakota, that means, well, you know, you've either got to be gay or you've got to have some strange fascination with boys in tight white <laughs> underwear. But that's not the case, is it? There's far, far more to it than that. And it involves a great deal of uh, autorism and, and, and ability. I, I just... I love his work because it is so singular. It mm. is... You can tell when you watch a David Dakota movie, particularly the movies that he started making under his Rapid Heart banner, yeah. uh, late 90s, early 90s, mm-hmm. you can just tell you are watching the, something very personal. Mm-hmm. Something very considered, something very well thought out, and I love the almost punk energy of yeah. it in terms of that he doesn't give a shit <laughs> if you. He just wants to make movies for people who either want to be titillated by mm-hmm. their gay baiting imagery, mm-hmm. or people who just sort of jive with his sensibility and that these are you know these are sexy strange stylish little B movies and I love that mm. uh, I have no I, I've been banging the Dakota the Dakota drum for so long now that I really do hope that it has become the director who you know you've got Mark Commode and The Exorcist I want people to think of me as the champion of David Dakota's work and it's it's unfair that it isn't really t- spoken about I mean Queer horror is very much in vogue. Mm, it uh, is. And people are discussing it far more than ever before, mm-hmm. but nobody is really talking about Dakota. And, and we were on the phone to Sam Irvin, weren't we, recently, who's an uh, mm-hmm. amazing director and was PA to Brenda Palmer back in the day, and, you know, openly gay man himself. And I asked him the question about how much of a trailblazer Dakota was, and he said, you know, he was really... He, he without Dakota... There would be no Vampire Diaries. There would be no Twilight. Um, you know, there, he, he is the person who is responsible for. You know, these are, aren't just queer horror movies in the sense that they're playing to art house crowds no. and things like that. You know, he certainly does have his art movies. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and leeches very much. It could be argued fits that mold, and mm-hmm. that is a, that is my interpretation of the film. But Dakota's movies were so widespread at mm. the turn of the millennium. These he had a massive distribution deal with yeah. Blockbuster, Hollywood Video. Mm-hmm. His stuff was out there getting rented, and it was making money hand over fist. Obviously, the the backstory to it all is that you can almost split Dakota's career into two parts. Yeah, There's yeah. pre Rapid Heart mm-hmm. and post Rapid Heart. The pre Rapid Heart tends to be it, it's substantially less um, less gay, I suppose, than his <laughs> Rapid Heart movies. But and that's the stuff that you know he he began in 1986 yeah. with Dream Maniac mm-hmm. for uh, Charles Band, which would lead to him making the likes of Creepazoids, Sorority Babes, and the Slimeball Ballerama, as well as overseeing Full Moon's entire erotic subdivision for a long time. You know, he was overseeing the stuff that they were making for um, Torchlight and yeah. later Surrender, and then. 
so he was pretty much of a gun for hire for Full Moon. He single he pretty much kept the company afloat in the yeah. late 90s with Shrieker and Curse of the Puppet Master, things like that. And then in 1999, December 1999, Dakota decided that he wanted to make commercially viable movies, mm-hmm. but commercially viable movies that were something that he owned and that he could express his own artistic vision with, yeah. which is why Rapid Heart was born. Yeah. Now, before all that, there'd certainly been, um, you know, homoerotic imagery in his films. It's right there from Dreamania. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. there's, it, that's a very homoerotic movie about yeah. a succubus. It's very murder weapon. You mm-hmm. know, where it's it's got uh, Eric Freeman of Silent Night Deadly Night Two fame with his beautiful chiselled physique. <laughs> You've got uh, things like Absolution in the late 90s, which he made for John Ayres. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, very homoerotic. Then you've got Voodoo Academy, That's right. which utterly horrified <laughs> Charles Band upon his first viewing of it. Mm. And it is, you know, it's it's like a, a Kenneth Anger movie. <laughs> it's Kenneth Anger meets Jess Franco. <laughs> and it's just this weird sort of film about uh, Christian scientists and mm. witchcraft that just so happens to contain a lot of very sexualised imagery of yeah. boys in tighty whiteies. Yeah. And that is very much the path that Dakota um, went on with Rapid Heart. That be, that became the Dakota look, the Dakota mm. vibe, and and it is one that he does incredibly well. You can you can spot a David Dakota movie oh, yeah. a mile off. Without doubt. Yeah. Now, Leeches, we're fairly far into the Rapid Heart era, mm-hmm. aren't we, really? We're in 2003, so, what, probably about... A dozen movies in or something. Where do we begin? Voodoo Academy Presents. I've been watching you. Final Scream. Young Warlocks has gone. Frightening has gone. Wolves of Wall Street has gone. Mm-hmm. Brotherhood Three has gone, and now we've got. Yeah, leeches. this is where we've got leeches, yeah. and I think it's the first. Whereas the others were quite conventional narratives, this is the first time you've got Dakota. You really using the visuals to tell a story, and that's mm. something that he has done a lot since. You know, I always used to peg um, this very experimental and crazy little homoerotic horror remake called Beastly Boys as sort mm. of his artiest movie. Yeah. But revisiting Leeches, what strikes me about it is it's such a visual film. Yeah. You know, you can turn, you can turn the dialogue off, and mm-hmm. you can still follow it with the visuals, which are very, very experimental, very sort of strange. Um, a lot of, and a lot of it rests upon the marriage between. Uh, the visuals and the the soundtrack, you know, there's this Argento esque sort of poetry to what's going on. Yeah, without doubt. I mean, part of that has got to be put down to the absolute genius of Gary Graver. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Gary Graver has well was going for decades, wasn't he? He mm-hmm. was a huge friend of Orson Welles, and ended up um, landing. Orson Welles' sort of favourite, unfinished film, yeah, like his, The yeah. Other Side of the World. Of Side of the Wind. Other Side of the Wind. Um, that finally got released via Netflix last year. Um, he did a lot of hardcore pornography. Mm. And also he sort of directed a couple of his own features, did a couple for Fred Ol and Ray. Mm-hmm. And he was around anyway, but he had a, he was known as the sort of the, the setup king, wasn't he? He could pretty much mm. get a, an incredible amount of work done in any given day. And so that's that's kind of a good marriage between Dakota and Graver. Mm. But he had a really good eye, didn't he? I mean, as you say, Leeches just looks It's, it's gorgeous world. to look at. Mm. Utterly gorgeous. Not just in terms of composition either, just in terms of in terms of movement. There's a real dance like quality 
to mm. the film. You know, a lot of elegant tracking shots, and it, yeah. it just it blows my mind that this film was made in six days. Six days, six twelve-hour days. Six twelve-hour days, and shot, <laughs> shot on uh, thirty-five millimeter anamorphic. It's got a, such a cinematic feel to it. it it's it's a wonderful visual Cine- experience. Cinemascope, wasn't it? Cinemascope. <clears throat> but that's the crazy thing. I mean, that that's that's kind of I don't know. It's almost like an irony, isn't it? Really, you know, how can a six-day film look that good? Well, Dakota knows how to make it look mm. that good, uh, and it's to shoot it on that film on thirty-five mil, and it just it almost confounds expectations, doesn't mm. it? So, I mean, what have we got going on in the film itself? Uh, we've got, but well, it's a very sort of simple the, the, the setup, plot, isn't it? Largely. Irrelevant. It is. I think it's a a swim team who've been taking steroids. Mm. They practice in a local swimming hall, (laughs) which is like this little swampy area. The uh, the steroids end up somehow... They're attacked by these leeches that get stuck on them in the swamp hall. And the steroids in their system cause these leeches to grow to Mm -hmm. colossal size. And then they end up just terrorising this campus. Mm. Um, Obviously, in the interim, there's a lot of excuse for like shower scenes, (laughs) beautiful glistening torsos (laughs) by the poolside and things like that. Um, But it's largely irrelevant because the whole film is just an excuse just to show these really quite extreme horror images mm. um, especially in, in the sense of I mean the film and I, I, it, it blows my mind because the film is basically just one giant cock joke <laughs> you know if it is it, it is not lost on me that the, you've got these big throbbing <laughs> pulsating black masses yeah. crawling up a lad's back over his ass, slapping around his face. <laughs> you know, do I need to spell it out for you? It, it's it's just a giant dick joke. Yeah. Um, and it's just an excuse just to sort of... I see it as almost like a meta-commentary on people who, okay, if you were shocked at how homoerotic my early Rapid Heart <laughs> films are, this is really going to put your nose out of joint. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it. I see it as I'd like to just imagine some, you know, really blokey alpha male type, <laughs> you, you know, catching a, catching them off guard by it. You mm-hmm. know, like going into blockbuster, you know, of it with their whole men, footy, tits, slager, oh, yeah. that sort of attitude, <laughs> and they'd rent leeches and watch it with their girlfriend and. I imagine they'd be utterly horrified. They'd be going into these sort of "I'm not a poof" type like <laughs> meltdowns. You know, my dad, for instance, if yeah. I if I showed him leeches, you know, and, and God bless him, I don't think he realises he's doing it, but he's a bit of an armchair homophobe. <laughs> I can imagine it, he'd watch leeches and have a conniption, and then he'd have to go listen to Queen or Elton John to calm <laughs> down, not realising the irony of the situation. <laughs> and and that is compounded by Mike Gingold's script. Yeah. And who, you know, he has admitted that he wrote it to Dakota's spe- specifications. He knew full well what type of movie Dakota was looking for. And he really wanted to ladle on the innuendos, ladle on the, uh, the sort of jokey imagery. Yeah, w- without doubt. And <clears throat> I think sort of that, that, that whole phallus uh, throbbing thing is only possible because of the work of uh, Jeff Foley and Chris Bergson. Mm. I mean, mm. you know, the, the way that they created those creatures. Uh, there's no CGI in this movie in any way. It's all, you know, completely handcrafted mm. um, effects. And 
they did an amazing job when you think of it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it looks, uh, yeah, it doesn't look realistic, of course. You know, well, they're gross, for They're really they're gross. gross. I mean, but it's, it, it, it is it's, like it's a guy's... It's very cartoony in that. Yeah, it is essentially a guy's fist inside a, a rubber glove. Yeah. But that's almost part of the charm, really, mm. isn't it? You know, as you get it curling up the thigh of a, of a guy lying in his boxer shorts on a bed mm. and grabbing his ass um, before eventually sort of killing him that that's kind of the charm you know yeah and, and it is and it's bloody as well the actual day you know Dakota isn't afraid to let loose with the squirty blood effects no 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 do you think the strobing works uh yes i do i really like that mm. i think it's an interesting i mean i i always comment on with, with rapid heart stuff you can sort of uh, the earlier ones are like light lightning machine crazy mm. and there's always mm. some sort of strobe effect in that it's completely if you look at it Logically, it's completely nonsensical. Yeah. You know, because like, where, where the hell's this strobe? Is someone just turning a strobe on and off well, as these <laughs> leeches attack? But as a stylistic choice, it feeds into this strange, dreamy atmosphere that mm. Dakota conjures. And that's a strength not just of leeches, but of um, a lot of his rapid heart movies. You know, mm. but they don't feel real. They feel like the sort of... that. It's that moment between falling asleep and entering a deep sleep where your mind's sort of processing everything throughout the day it's there's a there's a real sort of oddball vibe to it and that's something that dakota would explore to a, a greater extent i guess what you'd term nightmare logic with mm. his 1313 series yeah, which yeah. are again incredibly gay much more they're much gayer than leeches and stuff but they don't have that mischievous playful streak no, that no, leeches no. has I mean, like with any film, you, any film we talk about, we always single out sort of who stood out and the cast. But to be honest, the star of the show is uh, is always Dakota. Mm. Um, you know, he, he's always more sort of memorable, or his work is more yeah. memorable than anyone in the film. Because not to say that you know there is any sort of bad performance in in, in the picture, but. They do the actors in all of Dakota's films, certainly in the Rapid Heart era, tend to be quite interchangeable. Yeah. I know he's very fond of some and I know he regards some. I know he, he always sort of keeps track on their careers and mm. and um is very sort of um fatherly almost yeah. with them. Yeah, very um, insanely supportive. Mm. Very very much a mentor to them. Yeah. But um but generally speaking, as far mm. as sort of uh, any iconic uh actors' roles standout performances they are mm. quite interchangeable yeah. and I know that you know Josh Henderson was in a couple of Dakota films wasn't he or was he no just in this one yeah wasn't he was just he? in this one it was Twining wasn't it? Matthew Twine it was in the, mm. the Frightening as well but they're like they're set dressing yeah they're, pretty and, much and you, you, don't, you don't be too you don't be too sort of dismissive of them because you know yeah. essentially they're there to look good mm. in, 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 in speedos but you know yeah. the fact is they're cast to look pretty and to sell the aesthetic mm. of the movie, and they, you know, I I can happily say that in in leeches, they, they are the physiques on the lads are stunning. Like the amount of work that it must have. To, there's more six packs than an explosion <laughs> in, in, in a carling van, you know, and yet it's just an aesthetic thing. It's just it doesn't. You know, even Gingold himself has said that mm. with the script, it, it, you try to put character development in a way, but it is it it's the visuals, as you say, the star of the show is always Dakota. It's the st- with the rapid heart movies, it's the style and mm. the mood and the energy of the film. Did Gingold do enough for you in the script? Um, I mean, 
just enough to get by. I mean, yeah. I, I think I sort of have a little... Because, you know, to quote... Gingold, of course, is the, the legendary horror journalist, mm-hmm. you know, a long-time Fangoria scribe. Um, but I just thought, and I, I believe he was Dr. Cyclops as well, the Dr. Cyclops video review guy, the oh, video yeah. guy of Dr. Mm-hmm. Cyclops. Um, and Gingold, um, as well as Leeches, he'd write uh, Ring of Darkness, the, yeah. the boy band, the zombie boy band film for Dakota. Mm-hmm. Uh, which did originally begin as a potential sequel to The Brotherhood, mm. uh, his classic homoerotic vampire film. But um, I just think in, it's it's strange how during Gingold's sort of tenure with Dakota, his Dr. Cyclops reviews of Dakota's stuff suddenly got a lot more positive. <laughs> and I think that, um, you know, I, I, I just... That rankles me. Yeah. yeah um. Yeah. But then you know it's the whole Roger Ebert Beyond the Valley of the Dolls True. kind of thing. You know mm-hmm. how can you you're trashing things that you're then part of? So I can. He does. He's got a great scenario at the film's core. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, and and it, and I like the playful nature of it. I enjoy the fact that Gingold is in on the joke, mm. and that he's. You know, he even says in the audio commentary of the film that some of his innuendos ended up not making it to the screen yeah, because they were yeah. too on the nose. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's a it's a good setup, and there's it's interesting. I think structurally, it, it, he tries to do the psycho thing where the lead is no longer the lead by the time the mm, film mm. happens, and I don't think that works. No, but no. A, again. It's totally inconsequential because the True. characters are just set dressing. Yeah, uh, and, and he did have a great title for the sequel, potential sequel anyway, didn't he? Uh, Leeches to suck harder, <laughs> which, which would have been would have been absolutely diamond if he would have done that. But but never mind. Um, it's a, the film is available in a few different editions, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've both got the double feature with yeah. Speed Demon, which is probably the best. Uh, way to view the film, isn't it? Because in mm. widescreen, yeah. it did get um, released cropped, didn't it? Much to Dakota's dismay in a few territories. Yeah, um, it's never seen the light of day in England. No, uh, we've never got a physical release of it. Um, mm. You can currently you can rent it on Amazon Prime, mm-hmm. and I do think that um, if it's it's well worth the one ninety nine, two ninety nine, whatever they're charging for it, because um, it's just such a a strange, funny, almost taboo busting mm. little movie, and it's just I. I implore anyone who likes to see directors operating at the top of their stylistic game mm. to seek it out, um, especially, you know, if they if they like directors who are staunchly hell bent on doing what they want to do as an artist. Yeah, I mean, no, I know that after this sort of twenty minute stint on leeches, that we've got a whole army of listeners uh, donning their tighty whities as we speak. And ready to engage in a whole orgy of Dakota movies. Um, and again, as I said with Fred Olin Ray, I'm gonna gonna pin you down and and ask you for your your, your five entry point Dakota movies for your average Joe uh, or Josephine. What 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 do you what do you think? Where would you begin? Oh man, my number one skeletons. Mm. I I love skeletons. His sort of small town uh, bigotry thriller yeah. about. Um, this creepy little community who uh, hound the impure people who come to live with them. That, that's an excellent movie. Mm-hmm. I would also say Puppet Master 3, Toulon's Revenge, is very, very good. It mm-hmm. is such a, a wonderful pulp horror tale and far and away the best of the Puppet Master sequels. Yeah. 
I'd probably I'd put Ancient Evil, Scream of the Mummy, his first rapid heart movie in there because I just when, when I first saw one, that, yeah, that, that just it, it blew me away. You can tell straight. I love how anytime someone does the first one of anything, mm. when it comes out so well realized, you know, and and the fact that he made this first rapid heart movie that mm. just set the template for the rest of them, I think that's excellent. But it's such a contentious pick because you know that film spent years in IMDb's bottom 100 um, so, uh, so did The Mangler no, and know, everyone knows but, The Mangler's a classic I know but you know I'm, 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 I'm the voice of reason I'm not you know this isn't my opinion <laughs> but I am you know pretending to be an army of listeners at home there thinking but you're screaming screaming at their, at their mobile phones or their, their laptops and saying but how can you pick Ancient Evil you know, Scream of the Mummy when when that was like a perennial favourite in IMDb's bottom 100. How can that possibly be an essential Dakota film? But you've explained it. It's, it's, it's incredibly well done. It's the template for all, for all that would follow. And the fact is that you can go into any charity shop in England, any CEX in England, any cash converters in England, and you will find a copy of that movie. <laughs> in terms of... You know, if you want to just pick something up as a quick fix, that's like that should be like your fish and chips or your McDonald's mm-hmm. in terms of Dakota movies. Um, I think what the other the others add add to that uh, a Voodoo Academy, which yeah. any movie that can, you know, re- render Charlie Band dumbfounded <laughs> deserves to be seen. Mm. Um, and probably I'd have to go for something quite Dakota mainstream, like Sorority Babes in a Slimeball Boulder oh, really? or Nightmare Sisters. Yeah, I, I, I had Shrieker down because I'm a big fan of Shrieker. Mm. I love the look of it. They put it on full moon streaming a couple of years back, didn't they? Oh, like, yeah, the widescreen. Be- yeah, beautiful widescreen version. Absolutely gorgeous. And also, maybe Final Stab as well. Mm. Did a bit of a weak that spot is pretty good. And Massacre Video put a, an immense Blu ray out um, about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really cool. And we have sent 88 films, about 20 messages, begging them to release Final Stab on Blu ray. Uh, and they keep on ignoring us, <laughs> but uh, you know, get a few hundred. See, uh, we are that influential. Get a few hundred uh, natural selection listeners banging on their door, and 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 you never know. You're listening to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. A house full of convicted felons, just right up the hill from a murder scene. James Crane, you're under arrest for suspicion of homicide. The demons or the cops? One or the other's gonna get you. These things supposedly don't go any bigger than six inches. What I've seen, you don't want no part of, smartass. Demons. The bucks. So corporate greed is the reason I'm going to be eaten by giant scorpions? There's no phone, no transportation, no law enforcement, no real weapons. All we have to do is hold them off long enough so we can get out of here.
That was the trailer for Deadly Stingers, aka Mega Scorpions, the final film by J.R. Buckwalter that he directed back in 2003. And uh, we have a real bond with uh, with J.R., don't we? Yeah, um, I don't want to get too sort of personal, but I, I feel when we talk about Buckwalter movies, we I should have got you like an anniversary card or something like that, because... Buckwalter was the filmmaker who, back in when we first started blogging, those many, many years ago, it turned out we bonded over our shared love of Buckwalter's stuff, each under the belief that no one else in the UK had actually <laughs> heard of the guy. So it was quite a, oh my God, you like Buckwalter too? Yeah, um, I think that's probably still the case. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, certainly someone, certainly a character that no one really... Talks yeah. about. I know that. Um, I know that eighty-eight edition of Dead Next Door did do terrible business. So yeah. I'm presuming that the UK is just a, a country that never really understood and, and got the whole Tempe video thing. Because of course, Buckwalter, you know, the sort of Akron, Ohio guy, started out making films like Dead Next Door, uh, Robot Ninja, um, before eventually, um, after doing his own little films like um, Polymorph and. Ozone. Ozone. He started uh, working for Full Moon and Charlie because he moved out to LA, met David Dakota, and. Um, well, more, no, no. more rekindled uh, mm. his working relationship with Dakota. Because they had a thing with Cinema Home Video, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, Dakota's um, prior to Rapid Heart mm. video label, um, Buck Walter, made a slew of backyard epics yeah. uh, for him like uh, Zombie Cop That's right. and uh, Chick Boxer. Yeah. But. The thing with uh, Buckwalter is when he got out to LA and started working for Full Moon and Charlie, it was mainly from a production point of view, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was his uh, his Fat Cat production facility that sort of edited and, and did a bit of work on mastering and uh, uh, things like that on, on, on some of Charlie's films at the end of the mm. A lot uh, of Dakota 90s. stuff mm. as well. It was a, a lot of the... Obviously, we, we I think we mentioned earlier that Dakota was single-handedly keeping Full mm, Moon afloat mm, yeah. then um, with Shrieker with Curse of the Puppet mm. Master both of which Buck Walter had a hand in the post-production of yeah but this was a big change for Full Moon wasn't it it was mm. the end of the 90s the sort of crash had begun to happen the the home entertainment industry was changing uh, a great deal Full Moon's focus was changing as well from sort of film shot on 35mm to film shot on video mm. and it's a really um, contentious part of the history, really. I know when we we assisted in writing, you know, it came from the video aisle. It was something that we we sort of didn't really gel with with regard yeah. to um, who was uh, yeah. our co-writers. You know that they kind of had a really disapproving opinion about that whole full moon slash tempe video era that mm. went from maybe late ninety nine to early two thousand three. Yeah, they. Uh, we we both always really liked the mm. Tempe stuff. I think films that Buck Walter had a hand in, at least as a producer, like uh, Horror Vision. Yeah. Um, you know, what was the Hell Asylum? Mm. It's one that I always love going back to. Mm-hmm, watch it mm-hmm. every year around Halloween. I just think it's a a, a yeah. great sort of Blair Witch variation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I. I don't want to say we romanticised that era, but we were certainly fascinated by the movies they were producing at that time. And it was a little 
disappointing that you know our co-writers who are by the way brilliant they mm, are amazing absolutely. and we have nothing but love and for it's a great book yeah it's, it, it came from a video aisle is you know we're thrilled to have been yeah. a small part of the definitive book on full moon's mm, history mm. but it was always a bit of a sore spot that you know we we couldn't ever completely voice our love for book walter and Tempe's involvement mm. because obviously when you're writing as part of a writing team, you need one unified voice. Yeah. And so we couldn't, you know, go all out with the book Walter banners and uh, balloons and stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, that was where we sort of popped our cherry for Full Moon, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, that era. Uh, and they were the first Full Moon films we watched. Well, people a bit older might have grown up with stuff like Trances and Puppetmaster First Time Round. And also films like Robot Jocks. Uh, for us, discovering what Charles Bam was about and what he did was very much thanks to the work that J.R. Bookwalter did. Mm. So Bookwalter started, was it Witch House 2 was his first directorial this, Yeah, this, uh, so obviously he oversaw the post-production yeah. on a couple of titles. One of my favourite bits of Bookwalter trivia, actually, mm. is that he oversaw the original uh, DVD release of David Schmoller's Tourist Trap. Right. As well, he was the guy who remastered it oh, for okay. Full Moon and remixed it and mm. all that jazz. And so after impressing Charlie with his work ethic as a post-production supervisor, mm. Bookwalter ended up being offered the chance to make Witch House 2, Blood Coven, which yeah. is a vastly, vastly superior <laughs> sequel to uh, David Dakota's original Witch House. Mm-hmm. After Witch House 2, um, you know, he'd, he'd gone to produce the slate of... Tempe movies like Killjoy 2 and ultimately the doomed Groom Lake that was directed by William Shatner uh, and which of course along with Deadly Stingers um, Mm. led Buck Walter to his sort of disillusionment his career burnout uh, whatever you want to call it because Deadly Stingers from what I gather was not a pleasant experience for him. No because I mean like Buck Walter went to Full Moon with the idea of being very hands on but as what his role in the company has expanded, he tended to be more hands-off, didn't he? He tended to mm-hmm. have, it, have a more supervisory role, which he wasn't really into. Um, but with regard to Daddy Stingers, yeah, it was it was penned by C. Courtney Joyner, who, of mm-hmm. course, is the legendary Full Moon scribe who wrote stuff like Prison and... Puppet Master 3. Puppet Master 3. Um, and, and, uh, genius. Genius. As well as a lot of other quality B movies oh, like yeah. Class of 1999 from The Whisper down. to a Scream, mm-hmm. the, which is a wonderful uh, one, of, probably one of the best horror anthologies yeah. out there. Yeah. So it was the idea was to have a throwback to 50s uh, horror movies, creature features. The budget was fairly healthy. It was about $150,000, which for Full Moon was, was a pretty good chunk of change, considering that they'd pumped out films like Killjoy 2 and. Hell yeah. Asylum and Dead and Rotting for a lot less money uh, in, in the years prior to that. Um, and in terms of Bookwalter as well, that is a colossal That's chunk huge. of change. You know, mm. this is, like Witch House 2, Deadly Stingers is what I would term big budget Bookwalter. Yeah. You know, this is a guy who was, who prior to this, he was making like, I think Ozone was shot mm. for three and a half thousand dollars. Mm. Um, you know, stuff like, uh, Robot Ninja and mm. Skinned Alive that was $25,000 yeah but there was a potential deal with Fox on the table wasn't mm-hmm. there that was the idea the idea was let's let we can do this 150k and then maybe this could see the dawn of a new era for Full Moon mm-hmm. with a partnership with Fox but 
it didn't really come to play. And in fact, well, before we discussed the film ourselves, I mean, Bookwalter uh, refers to the film as Deadly Stinkers. Uh, <laughs> I think it was, I think it's, well, he's always said, I mean, he's a very sort of... Um, he's very candid. Very um, candid, but also self-deprecating yeah. you know, to some respect. He doesn't really sort of blow his own trumpet. And he said that it was his worst experience on a set. Um, and at the time when it was unreleased, he was uh, sort of very pleased that nobody uh, yeah. had ever seen it. Um, although at the time when he did uh, mention the film, he always praised the cast and he always praised the uh, the work of DP uh, Mac Alberg, who of course had worked with Charlie for a good twenty years prior to that. Mm. Um, I think I mean you know it, it's his movie. He can say what he likes about it. You have to, and the artist is always going to be more critical of their work than anyone else. But Deadly Stingers. Very, very good. It's a, it's a little, it's a little bottle rocket of a picture. Mm-hmm. Great. I mean, it's just it's a standard creature feature, whereby, but with a twist, because you've got this unique building, which is like a halfway house for uh, for criminals, sort of populated by a really uh, eclectic mix of mm. you know B movie icons. You got Trent Hager, you got Lilith Stabs, but the main guy in the film, a guy uh, actor called Nicholas Reed, who plays Jim Crane, is actually a former detective who got set up uh, and implicated for the murder of his wife, which mm. is the reason why he's at this halfway house. Also, I believe, and this is one of the things that my criticism of the movie is it, mm. it gets a little bit confusing with the whole toxic waste dumping kind yeah, of yeah, thing yeah. Uh, and the connection to this ex-detective halfway house resident how mm-hmm. he's involved with that because it turns out that the, the town's nasty mayor who is played <laughs> by the brilliant Jay Richardson mm-hmm. a long time uh, mainstay of both Fred Oldenroy and Jim Wynorski and this guy he can do smarmy bastard in his <laughs> sleep and so he's the mayor of the town he's orchestrated yeah. some sort of toxic waste dumping mm-hmm. thing that's getting dumped in the desert out on the outskirts of town, which of course causes these scorpions um, to end up go swimming in it and become giant. You know, probably what the size of an Alsatian, something like that. Yeah, the size of a dog. Yeah, yeah. And they are these nasty, awful scorpions that are just going around chopping up the uh, chopping up the townsfolk, mainly the ones in the halfway house. Yeah, I mean they did make like proper puppets, proper mm. casts of the scorpions, but as Buckwater said, they just did not work. It was impossible to light them, and in the end, there's about ten shots of the puppets, and the rest is, is CGI, mm. and you know, it, it's kind of a contrast that doesn't really work, but to be honest, it's not that jarring. I mean, considering some of the films that have followed, certainly in the mould of sci-fi features, there's, there's, some, there's, there's far worse CGI. And we've mm-hmm. spoken a lot mm-hmm. on bad CGI in the past anyway, so we, we, we won't repeat it. But I don't think, you know, any of the Scorpion footage is, is, is that bad. In, no, in no. There is a lot to like about mm. the movie in general. Um, there lots and lots of fluid camera work, very energetic. I, I love it when Buckwalter flexes his stylistic muscles. And it, it's just nice here that, like Witch House 2, He's able to afford to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I love the green lighting to the toxic waste dump. I think <laughs> that's just wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderfully comic booky. From an auteur sort of perspective, I think you can. The flaw that you could pin to it is that it's that Deadly Singers is probably among the most old school and classic of Buck Walters movies. In yeah. that, 
I don't want to say it's conventional because that implies boring, or it does to me at least, mm. um, but it's not quite as hip or provocative as the likes of The Dead Next Door or Robot Ninja or Ozone, which all have this sort of subversive, anarchic and topical kind of bent to them. You know, yeah. a kind of cheeky transgressive streak, I'd mm. say, um, to their setups, uh, be it in their view of uh, society, of mental health or, or drug use. However, Deadly Stingers still has that sort of outsider's edge to it that Book Walter's best stuff does. As you as we said about the halfway house setup, you know, it's just full of these weird misfits, <laughs> uh, down and out druggies, ex con uh, ex cons, and that's got a little bit of a of an edge to it. But you know, even when Book Walter is in sort of pulpy and quote unquote conventional territory, that you know. There's, there's always an energy to mm. it. You know, uh, the, with The Sandman, which was sort of like a, a Nightmare on Elm Street variation, mm. you know, it's got that kind of white trash aesthetic to it. Witch House 3, which should have just been, you know, another spooky witchy sequel. Yeah. It's got this real feminist bent to it. So while Deadly Sting is, isn't as audacious as The Dead Next Door and Robot Ninja and that, uh, yeah, there's still... There's still a little bit of Buck Walters outsiderism. I just think it's muted somewhat. Yeah. I must admit, it, it's not... It's probably my least watched film of his, to be honest. Mm. Still, I haven't seen it a couple of times in the last two weeks. It, it does really grow on me. It's quite a short picture. It's only 73 minutes. Mm. When it was... It did finally see the light of day very unexpectedly uh, back in January 2010 when it suddenly popped up on the sci-fi channel in the UK. Uh, I don't know why they chose Britain, but for some reason it just popped Actually, up. Actually, it was Zone Horror. Zone Horror, of course on, it yeah, was, yeah. Zone Horror. Um, which was pre-Horror Channel, yeah, was pre, it? Yeah, pre the, well pre-Horror Channel. Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. sure when they changed their name, no. but uh, for what it's worth, they've still always made their films look like they've been projected onto a dirty bed sheet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no offence, Horror Channel. <laughs> And then um, it did finally get a sort of release of sorts onto Full Moon Streaming, and that was back in December 2013. And even then, I, th- I think I watched it maybe once and, and didn't go back to it, but not like you say. Quality B-movie. Yeah, just, just snappy. no more, no less. Yeah, no, it's snappy, no fat. Um, it's all set over one night, mm-hmm. which I really, you know, I like that whole yeah. sort of Night of a Living Dead illusion. You know, it's almost as mm-hmm. if with the dead next door being so indebted to George Romero's yeah. zombie films, yeah, that's true. I, I, I like that sort of tip of the hat to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it, it's got, as you've said, it, it was designed after those 50s giant insect movies like them, like uh, Tarantula. And so it's got a a wry sort of knowingness about it, but it never tips over into irony. It's a very sincere mm. movie. And it's certainly, it's nowhere near as awful as Buck Walter paints it as. No, well, I think that's the big surprise, isn't it, really? I mean, that's the thing. Since the film was, was made, I mean, I remember, I remember it being slated for release back in you know, 2000, 2003. And the fact it never came around, even though you, you check Buck Walter's blog almost weekly to see like where mm. it was the fact that he was so dismissive of it perpetually dismissive of it i mean he never let up um and that, that's i think the biggest surprise that when you really get down to watching it and it's almost it's almost an anticlimax mm. in that you're expecting a car crash of a film mm. um but it's not and you know that that's the way you know it's it starts with 
two pseudonyms with uh, Jonah, C. Courtney Jonah, taking a uh, pseudonym, uh, Gene Yarborough, and, and Buck Walter himself uh, using his Lance Randers um, pseudonym for, for, for writing credits. And you think, oh, well, if they've taken their names off it for mm. writing, then it must be bad. But it, it just isn't because the people, it's got people around it who are too good mm. to make it bad. If yeah. You know what I mean? You know, you've got, certainly if you're of the Bookwater persuasion, you've got a, a whole host of characters that are popping in and out of the film, like Ariana Albright, mm-hmm. who, of course, is in Witch House 1 or 2. Uh, Jeff Sisson, who was in so many of Bookwater's films. Likewise, Jason Paul Cullum, Debbie Rashon, Jeff Dylan Graham. They all pop up momentarily, which is kind of a wink to the camera yeah. to sort of... Uh, Brink Stevens, too. Brink Stevens as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As well as people behind the camera that we know. I mean, Chris Bergschneider, who mm-hmm. we spoke about on Leeches. He's doing uh, you know, the FX here. Mm-hmm. Mark Bautista, who, of course, had a long history with... Was it JRB and, and Full Moon? Or... Anyway. Um, and, of course, the second unit is directed by Danny Draven. Mm. who of course is part of that whole um, uh, full moon revolution midst, uh, yeah, mm. the temp of the temp era yeah. I think more than anything Deadly Stingers was just a victim of poor timing mm. you know mm. it was slate, as we've said it was slated to be released by Fox but I think it came down to the choice between picking Deadly Stingers up or Richard Friedman's Dark Wolf mm. uh, which is um, this sort of weird colourful comic booky werewolf film uh, mm. Not a great movie. Nice to look at. Features a nice uh, werewolf suit by yeah. John Carl uh, John mm. Carl Beekler. God rest his soul. And I think when it when you put those two movies side to side, mm. it's it's just not quite as polished no. as Dark Wolf was. It lacks the sort of finesse. It's still got that slightly rough and ready quality that Buckwalter has to his other stuff, and I think that that probably worked to its disadvantage when it yeah. came for a major studio trying to pick it up. Mm. But that was that in terms of Buckwalter. I mean, this was his last film. He went into a career of uh, film distribution and other techie-orientated uh, goings-on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a real shame because for 14 years there, he, he made some amazing mm-hmm. movies. Uh, and it seems that, as this is the last part, I mean... Where where would we point people towards the essential bookwater purchases, uh, and also where would they purchase them from? <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> because mean, that's the thing—he's he, closed. His, yeah, he shut up shop. He shut up shop. He's he's quit. He's he, like obviously he used to self distribute, but now mm-hmm. he's pretty much uh, thrown in a towel in that. But if you do, by any chance, I think Ozone and Skin Alive had a release on I that. I think they're on Prime as well. Are they? Yeah. Ozone's probably my number one. Yeah, without water. doubt. I think that's uh, that's an excellent and very mm. uh, edgy and crazy work. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ozone, Robot Ninja, which is just this amazing sort of pre-kick-ass deconstruction of the comic book superhero. Yeah. Insanely gory, insanely violent. It sort of dips into like Tetsuo the Iron Man mm. towards the end of it, and it just... It just blew it just blew me away when I saw it for the first time about two or three years ago. Mm. I've watched it many times since. I love it. Yeah. The Dead Next Door is a classic of its kind. Mm. Polymorph. Yeah. Put yeah. that in there. And uh, in terms of conventional sort of filmmaking, Witch House Two Blood Coven is yeah. It's I saw just it last a, night, and it is uh, Andrew Prine especially mm. makes that film brilliant. I think from my perspective, I think on the production front. 
certainly I'd have to throw in Jigsaw, which is a film I really do care about. Mm. And from the Tempe Full Moon era, I think that's such an unheralded gem uh, that it really is. Uh, I, I love that movie. Um, and also a film that he produced in, I think it was 97, that Matthew Jason Walsh directed and wrote, which was Bloodletting. Mm. Uh, of course, Matt Walsh did about 40 films for Dave Dakota. Yeah. Oh, it's all linked, man. Um, it's all but yeah, linked. It is, it's all trippy. But yeah, Bloodletting, I think, is, is a definite must-see for me, uh, as well as Jigsaw. Um, I mean, we've recommended a lot of films today, so, so please, if you do seek any of these films out by Fred, Dave, or, or JR, then, then please let us know what you think. I mean, we do tend to live in a bit of a bubble sometimes where, you know, our world is populated by these, you know, crazy auteurs who do amazing work. But, you know, our opinions are perhaps a little, little bit niche. So if you do tend to broaden your horizons and, and go and check out some of these films, then please let us know what you think, be it negative or positive. Yeah, and if it's negative, we'll tell you why you're wrong. Well, absolutely. Um, <laughs> but thank you very much for listening. Uh, please go and share our podcast and tell, a, tell your friends about it. Share it, share it on Twitter. Instagram, uh, our page is called Schlock and Or. You can find us on Twitter, and you can find us on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at the Dave Wayne and Matty. You're at at Matty Budrevich. Great, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Natural Selection. You're listening to Natural Selection, the home of the DTV Creature Feature. As promised, here is our quick chat with Fred Olin Ray, where we talk about all things venomous. Uh, excuse the heavy breathing. Uh, was dangerously, dangerously close to fangasming. So, how how did you get involved with Phoenician? I take it you've you've had quite a a long association with Andrew Stevens. We're doing stuff for like Royal Oaks and stuff like that. So, I take yeah, it. Royal Oaks was uh, Andrew and Ashok Armitage. Mm. Well, the main thing is is that uh, Andrew had been in partnership, I think, with Cinetel. Mm. They had a company called Sunset Films. Uh, which was financed by Cinetel based on a an output deal that R- Roger Corman had with Andrew, mm. where Roger would get domestic rights and Andrew would get foreign. He didn't know what to do with them, so he hooked up with Cinetel, and then over some kind of dispute, uh, they split off. But mostly, I had turned them down on a Western called Heart Bounty, mm. and they went with Jim Wynorski, and so they started making a bunch of Jim Wynorski movies, and then they made one called Victim of Desire, I think, with Mark Singer. And mm. Wingshauser, and they had let Mark Singer, Jim had let Mark Singer do whatever he wanted, and he played it like he was Jerry Lewis, and it was a serious film, and they hated it, mm. and they got they got mad, so they 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 split off from Hertzberg there and formed Royal Oaks, and they didn't want um, they didn't want Jim doing their films anymore, so they called me, and they gave me Invisible Mom and Cyberzone, were two a two picture deal, mm. with the caveat that uh, other than you know. Invisible Mom was kind of a family comedy. They wanted to make sure these films were played straight. I said, no, no problem. So it just started a long, um, a long association uh, with Royal Oaks, which later then became a uh, Phoenician franchise. And uh, so it just, it, it ran for a few years, yeah. So in that sort of, uh, could, could you tell us a little bit about that era? You know, because to my mind and my sort of like podcast <clears throat> partner's mind, that... We we very much romanticise the sort of stuff that you did, that Jim Wynorski did for Phoenician, the what we call the, the the stock footage kind of 
action era where you'd obviously yeah. you know you'd be taking the the leftover footage from bigger movies and incorporating it around like films of your own what what, what was it like working at that time like how did you go about you know how did you craft well, they them called them they called them they called them hardware films as well they mm. is what the company referred to them as they were hardware movies movies built around submarines and jet planes and things like that and um they would come in, and I got one film called Critical Mass that I inherited mm. that was uh, me- meant to be a, a Jim Wynorski movie. And for some reason, they flipped Jim to um, Crash Point Zero, which was my project, which took place in the snow. And they said, uh, we want you to do Critical Mass, which was you know, to be made here locally in Los Angeles. So I said, yeah, I'm, I'm much more down for that. And they, they insisted that um, we use the... Um, uh, sort of a bus chase sequence from uh, Universal Soldier. Mm-hmm. They they insisted we use that as the finale, and they wanted us to use a sequence from Terminator 2 as the opening. <clears throat> and in between, you would make your the movie. <laughs> you would make your own movie. <laughs> right. So, you know, we would, we would study the footage, and I thought we did a very good job. We would um, replicate the vehicles and the costuming of the people who were in the other film. And... Um, like we had to replicate the the prison bus from uh, Universal Soldier, and we had to replicate the uh, semi truck with all the armor plating on the front for Udo Kier to drive. And um, we would get these, and uh, and this is this is how it would this is how it would happen. And then there'd be, you know, and then you'd open it up with that, and then make your own movie in the middle. Generally, there usually there'd be no stock in the middle unless there's a there was a helicopter chase in a car. That from species that they like to use, mm. that we did use a few in a few films, but um, that was kind of that was kind of it. You know, active stealth, the same thing. They had this opener, uh, you know, Air Force uh, Top Gun type of uh, sequence, and then they had uh, from I think it was called Black Eagle or Iron Eagle or something. They had uh, uh, Air Force uh, airport, you know, being bombed, you know, mm. uh, bombing uh, fighter jets and stuff. And that, and you did that on the ends, and then there was a little bit in the middle there from Bulletproof, which was a movie I actually was a producer on, uh, of a, of a tank or some kind of helicopter Russian thing going on. I don't know. I made a bunch of these, um, but yeah, it's mostly a matter of matching, you know, matching wardrobes, matching body types, and then replicating things, and it worked pretty well. Mm. It worked pretty well. Yeah, I think uh, what, what you were saying there about critical mass, the, the opening to that is is seamless. You know, like the way that you've used the footage from Terminator Two, you, you can't. There's no way in hell unless you know what you're looking for that you can identify it. Like if I was just flicking through the channels, or I'd, I'd just rented Critical Mass, I would hook, line, and sinker be into that movie, thinking it was like, wow, this is a real big budget. Thing. Yeah, and you do stuff like we go into a building, and then on the outside of the building, we put a big light and have the actors walk in front of it to match up the helicopter, which was shining a light in the building in Terminator 2. And then somehow a desk or something in Terminator 2 came smashing out the window. So we, Udo would then would grab a desk, and then he would rush it toward the window, then it would come outside, and then it would come out the window. So it was, like I said, you just had to be very clever. Mm. Um to do these things, and uh, uh, they were fun. They were fun. I actually screened uh, Critical Mass somewhere, and Curtis Harrington, who was a director I knew, 
came up after the screening and said, Fred, you did a marvelous job. And I just said, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, did, did, so you said they were fun. So I take it you, en- you enjoyed this sort of era making these movies. Well, it was it was it was great because you had a you had a budget, you know, mm. you had a budget, and sometimes the stars could be kind of difficult, but um, you know, and it was the kind of film I I enjoyed making. I mean, I wasn't really I wasn't really, you know, pumped up about matching all these stock shots and stuff like that, but um, it did um, it did uh, it paved the way for us to have work. Mm. You know, if you, if you could make five films, I would sometimes make five films in a year. And at that point, you know, I had little children and the whole bit, and so it was really, it was a, it was a very good, it was a very good run. You just, the trick is, of course, is that your movie in between all has to be as slick as the stock footage you're using, or else it's a dead giveaway. Mm. You know, mm. your film has to, your film has to rise to the level that those scenes don't seem outrageous in the middle of your film. Mm. You know, I mean, so, yeah, I, I think you. With those films, I mean, Critical Mass is just like, it, it's beautiful to look at. It's a very slick-looking film. Well, Jim, you know, there was an end to those films. Jim made a movie, and he took so much footage from a movie, I think it was called Invasion USA, a Chuck Norris film. Mm. And he took so much that I think the director was sitting there in a hotel room sometime and looked on the TV and saw it. And he complained. He complained to Paramount. <laughs> and then Paramount stopped. They stopped licensing. Because they would license. You could go in, and it would probably be twenty-five or $30,000, and you could get, that would get you 10 minutes of footage mm-hmm. from whatever film you wanted. And then Paramount put the, put the stop to that because this guy complained. And then, you know, Ron Howard had a clause in his contract that scenes from Backdraft couldn't be, couldn't be reused. Mm. And so they did one called Ablaze. And uh, I know they had a hard time getting the stock footage for that. I think they went and got it from a Canadian film called City on Fire. Mm. But um, it did start. I had a very good relationship with the Universal uh, Stock Footage Department, which is how Venomous came together. Mm. So when you say that you could go in and you, you could literally just get whatever footage you want, 10 minutes of it from whatever film, if uh, if it was available, and, I mean, you couldn't use anything that had a recognizable actor from the film in it. Mm. If you see Submerged, Submerged was made almost entirely of footage from one of the airport movies, the one where the plane sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Mm. And when we found that was available, we would go and say, you know, I would go in and I would say, look, look here, this is what we've got, you know, can we make a film with this? And that's how that's how Venomous came about. Uh, the stock footage guys at Universal called me because I'd gotten friendly with them, and they said, "Listen, we just got in a ton of stuff, B-roll outtakes, unused takes from a TV movie with William Cat called Rattled." They said, "We've got all this rattlesnake footage," and um, they gave me a VHS, and I looked through it, and I walked, I went in, I got a meeting, I went in, and I said, "Look, I've got this. Can we make a movie about rattlesnakes?" And uh, Andrew said, he said, well, he goes, why don't you make Outbreak with Rattlesnakes? And I said, okay, and that was it. And, uh, I mean, I went in and out of there in 15 minutes and came out with $1.3 million. Mm. And uh, ultimately, we used very, very little footage from Rattles. 
very little mm. uh, because it just didn't fit into our storyline. So we, we brought in, you know, dozens and dozens of rattlesnakes, mm. which they had in garbage cans, and they would just dump them on the floor. <laughs> and uh, there were two guys, two guys with, like, polished-down golf putters, you know, that they would scoop them up if they were trying to get away and put them back where they're supposed to be. And I said, there's two guys. You're not going to control 40 snakes. I said, so I said, give me one of those, and I'll, I'll wrangle them with you. And I did. I wrangled these rattlesnakes because we were in these underground tunnels where they had all these pipes and stuff. And, I mean, it would be very easy for a snake to get back in there and, uh, and disappear. We mm. never lost a snake. Never lost a snake. We tried. If you've seen the film, I haven't seen it recently, but the very first time we worked with these rattlesnakes, we put up a plexiglass or waist-high plexiglass shield across the, floor, uh, the, the hallway, and we put a piece of caution tape on the edge of it to hide the, the edge of the, um, the, the plexiglass. Mm. And they put the snakes down. And I mean, almost immediately I heard one of the camera guys say, hey, Fred, 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 Fred. And I looked over, and one of the snakes were already over the plexiglass and in his lap. It was a giant uh, eastern diamondback. There were two really huge eastern diamondback rattlesnakes. They were like boa constrictor size. And it was in, it was in the camera guy's lap almost immediately. <laughs> and uh, they wouldn't defang him, and they won't milk him, uh, because it's considered to be inhumane. Mm. So you've got these rattlesnakes, <laughs> fully venomous, and they're everywhere. Uh, but it worked out. I, the, only, the only time something funny happened... Uh, there was a girl came out of a shower in one scene in a towel, mm. and she walks by, and we put a plexiglass. That's the only other plexiglass shot, I think, in the movie. Um, and as she walked by, the snake struck. It struck at her, and it, it hit the plexiglass right where her kneecap was, and it looks like it bit her in the knee, which was brilliant, but scared the shit out of her. And there was a scene where a dog walks up. A dog walks up to a rattlesnake, and the rattlesnake was in a, in a glass aquarium that we had rebuilt the bottom of it to look like the desert. And we dug a hole in the desert and put the plexiglass or put the aquarium down inside. And then we shot through the aquarium across the snake toward the dog, which came walking toward, toward the aquarium in the shot. Same thing, I think, the snake struck at the dog, and it was a one-take deal. The dog would never go over there again. <laughs> but uh, it was pretty good. I mean, the dog... They, it was a, it really well-trained. It was called Cosmos. And it was the f- most trained dog in town at the time. And it crawled along the ground like after it had been bitten and rolled over and died. It was really sad. <laughs> <laughs> but no one, no, one, no one got bit. I mean, uh, no, one, no one got bit during the course of the movie. Oh, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, what you said when, obviously, you came up with the idea to let's let's do a snake movie. So how did how did you hook up with Dan Golden, who is credited well, well, with the script? Dan and I have been friends since 1987. He was a still photographer in the early days. He was a very sought after still photographer, and uh, he came onto my movie Commando Squad, and uh, we just we became friends. And uh, I liked his writing, and he wanted to write something. And uh, I'm not sure exactly how I, I chose him because I was also working with Steve Latchaw at the time. But mm. um, I did, I did decide to do it with Dan, and he did a really good, good job. Yeah, I mean, it's a very one of the things I really love about Venomous is that it's such a tightly scripted film, and there's all these wonderful um, sort of 
like you get a sense of who every character is because there's so many characters that are coming in and out of the narrative and they they feel like real people, real sort of small town folk. Um it's it's yeah, what probably one of my favourite scripts that you've ever like used in your movies. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I just think it's it's it, very it was, well it written. Was, it was big because there was there was a scene and I remember it was too big. It was actually too big to direct almost. It was a it was like a takeover of this town and this helicopter comes down and there's people telling people to stay in their homes and there's some army tanks and things. And it was a long there was a long, long street. And um Dan Dan Golden and a guy named Lee Langford, I placed them like Lee was at the very back end of the street, way back there. Dan was uh midway up the street. And then I was up where the main cameras were, and they were directing. They would they would stage the background actors who were crossing the street and running around, and the soldiers and all that. And each guy would take. He took one guy took the far end of the street, and then one guy took the middle of the street, and then I took the up front part where the actors were. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of what was required to get this really big shot. There's a really big shot, I think, where the copters just above the crowd, kind of coming across this town, and um, it was. Uh, it was interesting because we only had a half a day to mm. shoot the, the the bit of her trying. She's trying to drive through all of this, I think. Mary Page Keller, I think she's trying to drive through this town that's kind of gone crazy, and uh, and it, it worked pretty well. I thought it worked pretty good. That was uh, none of that was stock. You know? Yeah, I mean, when I was uh, when I revisited, it, obviously in preparation for the podcast and stuff, like. At first, I was, I was adamant. I was like, this must be stock. There's no way, like, they've got, like, a real helicopter in there and stuff. But anyway, it wasn't until I listened to your audio commentary where you said that, like, nope, you you built the the, the little town set and then obviously right. you had the chopper come in um, and you told this, this great story about how uh, on the morning that you thought that you'd lost the footage that you'd shot of all the army stuff mm-hmm. and then... Uh, well, it, was, it, was, it was all the stuff without the army. I had an entire army waiting mm. their scene, and then the morning was all this stuff of Treat Williams, like pulling up into a deserted town and running into the sheriff's office and all, all the other stuff. And then the door blew open to the changing room in the camera truck because they had an apprentice that uh, was a, what they call a must-hire, where somebody's related to someone and you have to give them a job. Well, they put him in there changing magazines, and he didn't close the door properly, and the door flew open around noon, right before lunchtime, and... We didn't know if the film was flashed or not. We just, it was 35 millimeter. We just didn't know. And so we had to come back after lunch. And in one hour, we had to shoot everything that we had done in, in say, four or five hours previous. But we already knew where to put the cameras because we'd already shot it once. So we, just, <laughs> we moved very quickly and reshot all that stuff. And we didn't get to the um, helicopter stuff until probably three o'clock in the afternoon. So it was, it was a near disaster, but it, and then we processed the film and it turned out that it had not been flashed and it was okay, but you couldn't know that. Mm. You couldn't know that on the day. So we had to reshoot everything for the pain, you know, but stuff happens. Yeah. Um, on the subject of sort of cameras and like the camera work and stuff, there is an, an absolutely amazing look to Venomous. Um, it's really, really crisp, really beautifully framed. Um, I, I was Who just was wondering the if you could, like, you remember? Um, two seconds, I've got it wrote down. And, was, uh, was it Gary Graver or Tom Calloway? Or? Uh, Andrea V. Risotto. Mm, right. Right. That's right. And then, I think, 
he did the unforgivable. I think he, he left the show early to take another job, and then somebody else came in and finished it. I'm not sure who. Right, right. But, um, right. He was a guy who'd worked, I think he'd worked with Unorski some. I, I hadn't worked with him that much, and then he did, he did that, something similar to that on a couple other shows, and they just stopped calling him, mm-hmm. you know. Because you don't want to change DPs in the middle of a movie. I'll take it, that'll, that'd give it a completely different texture. You see that in Beverly Hills Vamp. You mm. see where we went back and added eight minutes to it to get a certain distribution deal, and Gary Graver shot the the, the new eight minutes, uh, and another guy shot the original, and they look completely different. Mm. The lighting approach and everything is completely different. But on Beverly Hills Vamp, who cares, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's... Uh... Sorry, Fred, it's not one of my favourites of uh, of yours. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, with, with Venomous, obviously you've got Treat Williams. Uh, what was he like to work with? He, he had, I take it he had quite, um, or he seemed to, looking back, have quite the, uh, the direct-to-video draw at the time. He'd, he'd appeared in quite a lot of this sort of stuff. He did. He was a very sweet, he was a very sweet guy. And we, I think we had already done Critical Mass with him. We did two with him, mm. at least I did. And uh, we'd done two films with him. And uh, he was easy to get along with. You know what I mean? I think, I think all the snakes and stuff made some people a little bit on edge. Mm. Um, so I think that film, I think people's, people were a little jumpier, you know, maybe you know, than they had been previous on, on previous films. But I just kind of chalked it up to the fact that there were so many snakes. And, and these snakes, would, when they would strike... Because they did, they would uh, splash venom. Venom would splash out of their mouth, mm. and they kept telling people that if you had a scratch or a cut on you, they said, they said a scratch is as good as a bite. They said if you've got an open cut or a, 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 a scratch on you, and that venom lands on there, they said you, you've got to have it treated immediately. Mm. And these things were splashing. I mean, the, the venom was coming out of these things all the time. They they would strike, especially the little ones. The little ones were the most. The, they were the Western Diamondback. They were the tiny ones, and they were very. They were kind of like a shivering chihuahua. You know, they were always ready because I think they were the most scared of being stepped on. So they were constantly coiled and yeah. trying to strike. And uh, people were wearing these these snake boots, you know, because these things were these things were striking all the time. It's just that just nuts, absolutely nuts. Um, in in terms of. Uh, our podcast, we sort of we frame everything around like uh, the uh, creature features. You know the sort of movies that like popped up after Anaconda and Deep Blue Sea. You know where you'd have like the stuff right. that, like New Image were grinding out like crocodile and spiders and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, out of all that, yeah, we did we did, we did a bunch of those. Yeah, five or six of them, I think. Um, Venomous is it, it doesn't really sort of fit the mold of that. Like you said, it's more of like uh, outbreak. You know, it's more of a virus yeah. thing. It's not quite like, it's not like giant snakes, like, um, you right. know, something like Anaconda. And it's not as creature featurey as some of your later work, like uh, Dire Wolf or um, Silent Venom, which were much more sort of, of the sci-fi channel type mold. Well, they were, yeah, because that, I don't think the sci-fi channel was a thing mm. when I made Venomous. And Roger Corman wasn't involved in Venomous. It was one of the ones that Roger was not involved in. And it went to 20th Century Fox. Mm. And, um, yeah, I don't think it was trying to cash in on... um, I don't think it was trying to cash in on anything in particular. Mm. It was just an opportunity. 
of finding this all this stock footage and then being able to build some hardware stuff around it. Mm. Um, I can't remember, but there was some kind of building blowing up at the beginning, I think. Mm. And uh, I can't remember. I actually have my memory. I was trying to remember Jim Storm. Jim Storm was in that as the sheriff, and he was he was a guy who came in for an audition, and I recognized I was at the time I was watching these old dark shadows soap operas on VHS, mm. and I was I was in the last year of the show's run, and there was Jim Storm. He was a major player on Dark Shadows. So when he walked in for this, I said, you know, I said, I just watched you on Dark Shadows last night. I said, that must be a sign, so let's make a deal, right? <laughs> we, brought, we brought him in, and Hannes Janicki, who was a very famous German sort of leading man, he was in it as well. And I'm not sure if Andrew Stevens was in it. I don't yeah, and, uh, yeah. Stevens was in it as well. He he pops up as like a sort of like a, a White House aide, right? Yeah, I think he might have been the vice president or something. Mm. But uh, I think he probably played it all behind a desk on a telephone. <laughs> yeah, pretty. Yeah, pretty much. Actually, that's yeah. what. That, no, that was his mo because he was more of a producer, but he wanted to keep up his SAG Screen Actors Guild uh, mm. insurance every year. So he had to make a certain amount of money as an actor every year. So he would always place himself in our films and take a half-day part, mm. and then he would pay himself what he needed to uh, to meet his uh, obligation to continue his health insurance. Right. Yeah. Um, was was Andrew, like, on set as a producer, or was he... No. Mo- no? So he no. just, like, left you guys to... to yeah, yeah, they would, just give you, they would just give you the money. They'd go on vacation. My films were trouble-free. Never a problem. No one ever got a telephone call in the middle mm. of the night that something terrible had happened. I mean, people would go, they literally would go on vacation in Europe while I was filming. They felt that comfortable um, with us because we, and to this day, we still have that same reputation. We're on time, we're on budget, mm. and you don't get any calls in the middle of the night that all hell is broken loose, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, no, they left you alone because they'd have four or five movies going at one time. Mm. Um, looking at like the the credits list, I noticed that um, you've mentioned him earlier. Obviously, Jim Wynorski. He, he one of his many pseudonyms is on there. Noble Henry was was he like that's, your see, that's, producer? That's a, that's, a mis, that's a misnomer. That's that's Andrew Stevens. That's Andrew Stevens. Noble really? Henry is Andrew's is, that's Andrew's grandfather, and uh, that was actually his real name. His grand Andrew's grandfather. His real name was uh, Noble Stevens, and but the pseudonym sometimes got slapped on you know, to other people's shows and stuff. Because I know Jim left a movie called Virtual Desire one time. He left to go do The Wasp Woman. Mm. So I went and I, I took over Virtual Desire, and I finished shooting that film. Mm. And that that might have had a Noble Henry. Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but that that was just sort of a catch-all uh, mm. pseudonym. But mostly it was usually it was usually reserved for Andrew himself. Well, wow, I, I did not know that. Well, that is mm-hmm. uh, that. That's a game-changing fact, especially as I mean, myself and my podcast partner. We, you know, if, if you've seen us on Instagram badgering you a couple of times, we're in the process of writing like what we're wanting to be the the definitive sort of history of '90s direct-to-video movies. And right. you know, with that writing about that sort of stuff, it's they're not the kind of movies that have heavy coverage in, like, Total Film or Empire or even things like Fangoria, you know? And, like, right. a lot of the the only information that we have is the text, if you get me, you know, like, the is the actual film itself, and you sort of... We're going off, like, 
you know, what people have said on forums, on IMDb and stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, the Noble Henry thing is, is very well publicised as a Jim Wynorski pseudonym. So to actually learn that it was well, like I think it might have been on some shows and mm. it might have been three people total. I mean, mm. um, but it was an Andrew thing. And uh, I remember they, um, we were being sued uh, by somebody one time and they were taking depositions and they had Andrew. Mm. And they asked Andrew... If, he, if this was him and, they, and these different names, and he said yes. And they said, like in this court thing, they said, well, why do you use so many pseudonyms? And he looked at him, he swear to God, he said, because it amuses me. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, they used to write scrotum on all your paychecks, down in the bottom, where, in the left where it says what the check is for. Mm. He would write huge scrotum or something on your check. It would be printed as part of your check when you got paid. It was a, it was a very um, interesting time. Mm. And, uh, and I think they didn't publicize anything. They didn't want to. They didn't care. Mm. I mean, Andrew never really cared about the, the, the American distribution of some of these films because all of his money was coming from the foreign. So mm. they'd make deals where Roger Corman would come in and Roger would get um, the domestic. And Andrew and them would get the foreign, <clears throat> you know. Mm. And um, they would split these. We'd do these co-productions with Roger. And um, there were just so many of these going, and people would say, oh, why don't you do this, why don't you do that? I said, why would I do that? And they said, well, you know, it's a good promotion for yourself. I said, I don't need promotion for myself. I said, I'm not interested. I said, the only place I want to see my name printed is on a check. And, uh, and I meant it. And so I didn't run around to Fangoria or try to get interviews anywhere or do anything. Mm. I, just, I just show up every day and do my job and go home, you know. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out the Schlock and Awe page on Instagram. Well, you're welcome to stalk Maddie and Dave on Twitter. See you next time on Natural Selection.